Okay, welcome back to Wednesday nights. We're going to continue our study of the tabernacle. And uh, this is, uh, it's been a fun study for me for a long time. Uh, I think the first time I ever went through it was in the late 70s. Uh, and then uh, after becoming a pastor, I taught it, I don't know, two or three times since. And it is always a, a lot of fun. It's always interesting. There's always more that you see as you go through it each time. And uh, it's also a good uh, teaching aid to teach hermeneutics to people uh, concerning types and symbols and how do you interpret them and what's legitimate and what's not legitimate. And so it's always good to go back through them. Now, before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer and get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you again for your mercy, your grace, your love. And Father, thank you for your amazing plan. Uh, we come to you today just awestruck, uh, thinking about uh, what you have done and shown to the human race throughout history. And Father, I pray that tonight we just get another little taste of it, that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, we have covered so far, and I, I was looking back at my notes, and it was the uh, first part of June, I think was the last uh, Bible class that we had. And we actually started in chapter 25 of the book of Exodus. Now, we're at 2716. That's where we left off uh, whenever we took this break. And I really do appreciate uh, the break because it's uh, let me take care of Helen. It's let me... Uh, get some things done and get these uh, books that I'm working on uh, put together. And so far we've got some real good comments. People have been happy to get the notes and, and I'm glad to go through them because as we go through the Bible, the more we read it over and over and over, the, the better, more familiar we're going to get with it. But as you, if you can read through notes, they give a little more explanation as you go then what that does is it broadens and deepens your understanding of the Scripture and of the Word. And these notes that I've been working on have really tried to include the contextual flow, not just of the book itself, but of the entire New Testament. So hopefully it will give a better picture. And if you just go through and read the book of Acts, don't stop and look up all the verses the first time. It'll slow you down too much. Go ahead and read through it, and then maybe all the other books too, just... Read through them, see the points, because almost every point that's made there has got a Bible verse backing it up. So you can, uh, whenever you get a chance, after you go through it, get familiar with it, go back through it, and you can take your time, and you can chew on some meat while you're going through there and see, look up the verses and see that, hey, the guy's really not crazy. It really does say, say that, and here's where it says that, and here's what it's, here's what it's saying. But one of the reasons we study the tabernacle, because if you study it just from a purely literal sense, all you end up with is that God told the Jews to build a tent in the desert. And that's about all you get. But what did it mean? And to me, anytime God inspires a word, the Holy Spirit inspires a word to be put into the written word, there's a reason for it. There's a reason for the word selection. There's a reason for the word order. And he has invited us to find it. And so as we, we study things, and especially we get into the tabernacle, and I mean 
if if you have trouble with now I lay me down to sleep, um, you know, and going to sleep, you can put yourself to sleep reading through Exodus after you get past the plagues and the, the Red Sea crossing and the song of, of uh, Miriam. You can really put yourself to sleep with all the boards and the sockets and the dimensions and the cubits and all these other things. But once you start looking a little bit closer, and especially if you keep reading through the Bible, you eventually get to Hebrews, and it says the whole thing was a shadow of a reality. The shadow tells us and invites us to find the topology, the typology that was there, and what this thing was initially designed to do. Now, the tabernacle was an elaborate teaching aid. Okay, It was designed to teach about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the plan of salvation. It was a very elaborate teaching aid. Now, some people say, well, they didn't know what it meant whenever it was built. Well, I really think that Moses had a real good idea what what it meant whenever it was built. And he understood about redemption. He understood about, about Messiah being both God and man. There's a lot of things he understood. And every time that they got a little bit more information about who Messiah indeed would be back at that point in time, every time they went to the tabernacle, it was represented symbolically. So now we look back at it, having already been 2,000 years past the cross, and this 1,500 years before the cross, we're able to look back at it and see some absolutely amazing things. Now, this is revealed to Moses, and he said, I want you to pay careful attention to the pattern I reveal to you on the mountain. Do not deviate from it. So Moses is listening intently. He's going to have to rely on the Holy Spirit to remember it because I don't care how smart you were, remembering all these details with just one hearing. Now, that's a, that's a, I've seen, heard of photographic memories, but this wasn't written down. He was the one that wrote it down. So he had to be able to remember. I don't know about a photographic hearing. I don't know if, if people have that or not. I guess some people do. But the first thing that we're, we're, ta- we're told back to what we've covered so far is they took an offering up to build this. And as they, you start looking at how elaborate this was, they took an offering up because all they had was what they brought with them from Egypt. Now some people, the liberal theologians, say that there were only a handful of people that walked out of Egypt. Not enough to affect the Egyptian economy, the military, or anything else. And that there were just a few people, a few wandering Jews, that walked out of Egypt and everything else is mythology. Built, upon top of this, built on top of that historical event. They also say that the Sea of Reeds was only six to eight inches deep. And so, therefore, how did God kill a million Egyptians in six to eight inches of water. That's a miracle they don't want to talk about. But as you look at this, you ask, how could two dozen people carry all this stuff out? How could they, how could they do it? There wasn't any way. How could they have carried the, the, the tons of gold that went into this? It had to be more than a handful of people that walked out of Egypt. Because when they took up an offering, that's chapter 25, that's what starts it. And out of that offering, that's how they were able to build the tabernacle. So as you see, the, the magnitude of this, this structure, which 
really you can almost put it inside this building. The height of the, the ceilings are 15 feet. Our ceiling is 14 feet to the peak here, so it gives us an idea about about the height. And then about 30 feet across, and this is this is a 50 by 60 building. That's what this 50 feet this way, 60 feet this way, and it would basically have fit in inside of uh, of our building. But our building is not lined with gold. <laughs> And there is there is significant gold that goes around a, a beam that is 15 feet high and 27 inches across and 9 inches deep. And whenever you totally cover it with gold, that takes a lot of gold in order to to do that. What about this this uh, Ark of the Covenant? Because that's the first piece of furniture that's mentioned. You would expect that because it's all about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I find this interesting. About all we've got are, are uh, different uh, renditions of the ark. And I've looked at a lot of different ones. And I'm thinking, well, that could be it. That could be it. That won't be it. And just from following the, the description that we find. But you find out that there is a lid on the top of it. You find out that this is uh, all designated in such a way that it, it, it contains what the two tablets of the law the ten commandments that were inscribed by God for Mo- he broke those and then had two more subs- inscribed they were put inside of here you have a pot of manna that stuff that came down out of the sky six days a week for 40 years and then a double portion on the sixth day and you had Aaron's rod which was a ruler's staff it's a walking cane and it budded, it came back to life. And so on the inside of this, you had the two tablets of the law. The Lord kept the law perfectly. Did he not? He said he was going to, and he did. He is the bread that came down out of heaven. That is the the manna that is there. And Aaron's rod that budded is, I'm the resurrection and the life. Now here is very clearly, symbolically, that's what went inside of it. It was made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And we've been back through this uh, multiple times about wood referring to the humanity of Christ and gold referring to the deity of Christ. So the Ark of the Covenant itself talks about the hypostatic union, the big fancy theological word that basically says Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. He was the word (laughs) that became flesh and dwelt among us portrayed in this little box into the Holy of Holies. So notice that the ark is first established. This is what you'll this is what you shall build, and the rest of the tabernacles built around it. Everything else is built around the Ark of the Covenant. So it was extremely important. Only the high priest, after they got this thing built and set inside the Holy of Holies and the tent erected over the top of it, Only the high priest got to see this, and that was once a year on the Day of Atonement when he would come in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the top portion of this ark. Interesting, it's called mercy seat. That's the place of mercy. It's got two cherubim, cherubim on top of it. The cherubim were witnesses. Many have said that... One pictures the righteousness of God. The other pictures the justice of God. But in any event, you've got this set in a, an area 
that has curtains that go over the top of it. And all on these curtains are cherubim embroidered on the curtains. So it's telling us that there is a conflict between God and man. And it's going on at centers around this man we know as Jesus the Messiah. So all the, this is just part of the symbolism that is there. But this Ark of the Covenant is really what it focuses on. Now, if you go inside the tabernacle, we'll look at an overview here, cutaway in a little bit. But the, the, when you first went inside, you have the table of showbread off to the right. There were 12 loaves of bread for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what they were designated for. And so it, too, is made of gold. You can kind of see how this stacks up, right? What is one ounce of gold? bring today I know it's down the gold market is down it's under $1700 an ounce but when I was growing up it was $35 an ounce and then the government decided to take it from us and made it off limits to own at one point in time and so they picked up a whole lot of the gold and then they finally decided they would let it back out but it was $35 an ounce the whole time I was growing up and then whenever they put it back out, then it started to get more valuable and it can continued to rise in value. And now it's running a little less than $1,700 for one ounce of gold. Now, how much does an ounce weigh? <laughs> we all know not very much. And that's $1,700 in a little coin about the size of a quarter of pure gold. Now, when you start adding this up, which gives us the dimensions of the table of showbread, the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, you can see that on today's market, this thing would be extremely valuable. Another thing that hit me about the going back through this again, when I was thinking about how did two or three dozen people, according to liberal theologians, carry out all this stuff from Egypt? And if there was only two or three dozen people, why weren't they attacked? Because to have gold at any point in history, in any culture of the world, unprotected is dangerous. It's just flat dangerous. And so if you're thinking about why didn't, what about the Amalekites? Didn't they meet them? While well, the, the Jews were coming out from Egypt, the Amalekites were going into Egypt while they were there. The Amalekites did what? Left them alone. Now, if there's only three dozen people and they're carrying a ton of gold, <laughs> what are the odds of the Amalekites leaving them alone? Not very good. Oh, and who else was out there? Well, let's see. You got the start of the Assyrians that were there. You have the Canaanites that were there uh, in the uh, land of Canaan. You have all kinds of people that would have done anything to get that gold if they thought they had superior numbers to go get it. And nobody did. Nobody did. So <clears throat> the table of showbread, another picture, and God's got a special place for the 12 tribes of Israel. Always have, always will have. And then you have the golden lampstand. That's another rendition, by the way, of the table of showbread. We don't know exactly how they mounted all of the, the, the uh, 
poles and rods and stuff to carry it and all that, exactly how it was finished out with the different filigrees, how, what type of patterns did it have on it. We know they were there. We don't know what they look like. So that's, that's one of these things. When we get up topside, we say, Lord, give us a look at the real tabernacle. Then, then we'll be able to get a look at what these things really look like. But this also tells us that it was symbolic. They were designed to be symbolic because people have a tendency to worship things instead of worship God. And so he would rather leave them kind of nebulous there so people wouldn't do that. Why did he hide the body of Moses? Because he knew the Jews. They would have set up a shrine and started worshiping the body of Moses. Like uh, some do in Russia with uh, Lenin and some do in other places with the Buddha. And uh, they, they go worship the bodies that are there. But he said, no, nah, there's not going to be any body left here. I'm not going to tell them where I bury Moses. So the Lord buried him himself to keep the people from themselves, really. And then we have the golden lampstand. Now this is really a neat deal. It too is made of a talent of, of, of solid hammered work. Now somehow they're able to hammer all this gold into place. How do we do that? It says the work of a skillful workman. <laughs> we are not that type of skillful workman. A talent of gold, 75 pounds of gold. Now we're talking about $2,000 an ounce. 16 ounces, one pound is what? $32,000 roughly times 75. I used to could multiply that in my head, but it takes me a little longer now to do that. You're looking at a big chunk of change right here in this in the lampstand all by itself made from 75 pounds of pure gold. I saw a Buddha one time in uh, Thailand, and uh, it was the, I think it was a sitting Buddha. One thing about Buddha, there's a whole lot of Buddhas. If you don't like the Buddha that you're presently with, you go get another Buddha. That's typical of idolatry. And this one um, shrine in Bangkok had uh, 2,000 shrines inside of the big uh, shrine. This one, and one of them was a six and a half ton Buddha of pure gold. And it was inside, obviously, with some guards around it and things like that. But stealing a six and a half ton Buddha is not for your average roadside thief <laughs> it's just you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna have a plan that the a-team probably couldn't carry out so in any event you have the golden lampstand that is located inside of the holy place because they haven't told us yet just where these are, are going to go and then we get to the description of the curtains and we saw the uh, uh, inner curtain fine twisted linen with embroidery that has the uh, cherubim on the side of it. This is what they would see over the top on the inside. See, this curtain goes out and over. And then if you walk in on the, the inside of this, you see the, the coverings 
of these pillars that are there. You don't see this curtain itself on the inside. But this is this is on the outside, but over the ceiling, that's what covered the ceiling. So if you walked in, you could look up and you could see this embroidered work on, on the inside of it. You also had the goat's hair curtains that were there. Interesting, the fine twisted white linen. The white linen usually is representative of the righteousness of Christ. And it tells of what colors to be to use of thread to use to embroider the various things. What about the scapegoats? Anybody ever heard of that? The goats here, linens about the the scapegoat Jesus Christ. What about the ram skin dyed red? You think maybe that's got something to do with the blood of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross? And then this badger skin. I think we decided it might be a porpoise. Or something like that. It was the outer covering. It was waterproof. Of course they were in a desert. How many times they get their umbrellas out. Over the course of 40 years. Probably not very many times. But these four coverings. Covered the tabernacle itself. And we get a, a description of them. Talking about how they're joined together. How they're joined together by eyelets and rings. And these rings would take the the clasp and so they would take a basically a 45 foot curtain they would uh, drape it over the uh, tabernacle itself and then these were in six foot segments and so they would run the full length of the tabernacle and then they would have the clasp that would hold them all together and that's the detailed instructions that the Lord had given to Moses on the mountain this is how I want you to do it. Because hooking things together, maybe that's a, a joining, the assurance of salvation, the acceptance of the gospel. We went through all of this. Some of the, some of the joining things are made of bronze. Bronze is a picture of judgment in Scripture. Some are made of silver. Silver is a picture of redemption in Scripture. And down here on the bottom, these these pedestals that the the poles fit into, these are made of silver in this particular area of the tabernacle. In the backside, they're made of gold. Now, can you imagine a, a pedestal about a nine by nine by nine pedestal made of gold with enough just enough space hollowed out to set a tenon in from the uh, from the the rod going up on top of it, that no telling what that thing made. And it's silver. You have made a made of brass. You have made it of silver. You have it made of gold. And each place is so important because the holy of holies talks really about heaven. What about heaven? Gold is often a picture of deity, divinity. So guess what's going to happen in heaven? We're going to be in the presence of the Almighty. Now this whole thing is a beautiful story of the gospel, and not just the gospel, but it's the Christian life. It's a beautiful picture of what our Christian life should be. Because see, to get in this thing here, this big tent that goes out around the outside, that is called the outer court. That makes up what is called the outer court. So it is also given with very specific dimensions. It says make it 100 cubits long. 
And then it says, make its, its opposition 100 cubits long. And then make the backside 50 cubits long. And make the front side 50 cubits long. And you shall set these posts, 20 posts, for this 100, 100 cubits. So it actually lets us know how far apart each one of these things have to be to do that. It doesn't say take 18 or 22 or how many ever you think is good. He says 20 posts. And he tells them exactly how to do it. Now, <clears throat> we find the, uh, the boards and the sockets. And I decided to show this particular uh, rendering of it. Where the, uh, I've got another picture of the socket. But the sockets were hand cut. Um, sometimes we might have old pieces of furniture. They don't do it so much anymore. But they, they cut uh, various joints. Beautiful to see somebody knew what they were doing and actually cut those joints because they would uh, take the joint and they would cut it often like, like this and then they would cut a hole out of the uh, board it's going to be joined to and they'd fit those together just perfectly and then they glue them with each other. If they put a nail, it was just a little bitty nail to hold the glue. That's all they ever put them in there because once they made those things those drawers were not coming apart for a hundred years and so this was a pedestal that had a hole in the center and the pole that went into it also had a cut piece out of the bottom so they fit in there perfectly and that helped stabilize them so one of so the the base didn't come loose from the board that was there it was just very stable, unlike some of the structures I have built in my life that you wonder how they ever got up, and Helen reminds me about that occasionally, but anyway, <clears throat> here are the, the boards uh, that are there, the boards and the sockets, and then we have the veil and the screen. Now, this is a, a picture of the veil, okay, this, this is a cutaway, so it divides the holy place which has the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. That's in the holy place. The Ark of the Covenant sets in the holy of holies, or most holy place is a good way to translate that. It is separated by a veil. Now we know that there's symbolic language, especially from Hebrews 10th chapter, and it says, those who enter through the veil... That is his flesh. And he's riding through a bunch of Jews. This veil represents the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. It did what? Bore our sins in his body on a tree on the cross. And what happens when, whenever uh, he was done and it is finished? The veil of the temple, not the tabernacle, ripped from top to bottom. How would it start to rip from top to bottom? You might think a whole bunch of people could get hold of it at the bottom and maybe pull it apart. But how could it rip from the top to the bottom? Unless you had a force taking it apart from the top to the bottom. It's a picture of what God did in his omnipotence in a very beautiful way. But the veil and then this front is called the screen. And once again, there's given dimensions on that, 
how many posts, what they are set in, which is uh, bronze, and just how far apart to set them and to put this, this hanging on. Then we have the bronze altar. Well, that's another view of the curtains on the inside. These are artist renderings because nobody got a photograph back then for us to really know what it looked like, which is a shame. But here's, they meet the requirements, blue, purple, and scarlet material. Was it interwoven together? Was it separate? We're not told. What is embroidered on the outside? Cherubim. They are watching what is going on. The angels are... Do we have a verse like that? In Second Peter, things into which angels long to look? Well, they are observers to what is going on in this battle between God and Satan. Just as they were on top of the ark in the Holy of Holies. There is a very real unseen battle that is going on uh, even as we speak. Here again is another rendering of the, the, the veil on the inside and the hanging on the outside. And eventually I'll get there to the bronze altar. Now the bronze altar is where the sacrifices uh, themselves were offered, the animal sacrifices. And as we get to the outer court, it's, it's fascinating because there's only one door into the outer court. You kind of expect that, wouldn't you? One door into the outer court. Jesus said, I am the door into the sheepfold. Okay? How do you get inside? You've got to be a believer. You have to be a believer. So believers walk through that door, and the first thing they see is this. The bronze altar. Now they got a glimpse of it. I was thinking about this earlier. The outer court is seven and a half feet tall. Okay, so which is taller than all of us, about Shaquille O'Neal's height. So it's seven and a half feet tall. But the top of the tent's 15. So guess what? They could see as they approached the tabernacle in the desert they could see the top of a tent they didn't know what it was but see the outside part of the tent was a big so what dull drab didn't attract anything it was probably waterproof porpoise skins what I think we ended up with with uh, deciding on it I've, it's still hard to figure out exactly what I'll ask the Lord when we get there what did that word mean Tell us what it what it meant. So, and I'm sure he will. But in any event, as you approach, you go, "What's on the inside of there?" Because it just looked blah. Now, in the desert, it was probably the nicest thing out there in the desert, without question. But they had to go in to take a look at it, right? Heaven's a pretty good place, isn't it? But you got to go through the door to get there. See, all this stuff is teaching us the same consistent theology that has been around since before man was thought of. I, I couldn't have been before he was thought of because God's always known about everything. Okay, But back before we came into existence, 
This was already laid out. Now, this bronze altar had a recessed part of it. It was set on top of a hill, and it was uh, designed to be moved. But that's where they sacrificed the, the bulls and the goats and the lambs. That's where it was sacrificed. And the sacrifice that was placed on top of the grate, then his throat was slit, and then the sacrifice was out of sight of the viewers. That's the way it was designed. seemed like, didn't the lights go off when Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree? There, there, there's so much symbolism in this thing. I don't know if anybody can ever figure it all out. But that's the bronze altar. Now that brings us to where we left off. So that was an, I knew the introduction would take a little while. But that's where we left off. It is Exodus 27, 16, and this is the gate of the court. Okay, All this white linen on the outside is seven and a half feet tall. That is the court. Okay, And they call it the outer court. But there's a gate, not in this picture, that is part of that, and that's what we're talking about. He says, and for the gate... Now, the word gate, when we see gate, we think of the one that never works properly going into our backyard, right? It's put on hinges. It works good for a month or two. Weather sets in, and the next thing you know, we're reworking it, okay? This is word for gate. It just means an opening. It does not mean... Uh, that translation doesn't mean it was placed on hinges or anything else. He says, and for the, the gate of the court... There shall be a screen. Now this court is going to represent what we call phase one. Whenever an unbeliever becomes a believer, there's, a fa- there's three phases to it. The first phase is the moment and point of salvation. Okay, That's phase one. Phase two is the Christian life. That's where we spend the bulk of our time on this planet. Phase three is eternity. So once you believe in Jesus Christ, that's a moment of time you enter into phase two. The how then shall we live um, question. And he says, there shall be a screen. And this is the same word used for the screen for the entry into the holy place. Of 20 cubits. That's roughly 30 feet. We don't know exactly how long the cubit was. It was approximately a foot and a half by our measurements but we're the only people in the history of the world that uses our form of measurement everybody else uses a metric system and they've got uh, the royal cubits that are instead of 18 inches or 21 inches so for sake of simplicity I just took it as 18 inches to try and make it uh, as simple as, as possible and it says 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet material Now, if we go back and think back through some of the typology we've already covered, blue is a picture of heaven. Purple is a picture of royalty. And scarlet is a picture of the work of Christ. So it says, blue, purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted, and it's white linen. I don't know why they refuse to put white in there. It's fine twisted linen. It is the... uh, (laughs) It is the Mike Lindell fine linen that come out of Egypt. Where did it come from? Egypt. (laughs) 
okay? It is the fine linen that they are known for, and I'm sure everybody's heard the commercial that's alive on the planet here. They've heard the commercial about where that fine linen came from. Well, it's been that way since the time of Moses, okay? So it's good stuff, and it's fine twisted white linen, and white connotes righteousness. So it says, the work of a weaver or embroider with their four pillars and their four sockets. Let's see if I can find a picture of something here that would be of that. There's that sea cow. There's the tenons. And that's not it. So i got to go way back up here. And, of course, that picture is not here today. Anyway, this outer court went around the tabernacle, tabernacle set inside of that. And across this front, what it says is this 20-foot opening in this. Now, it's 50 cubits wide, roughly. So it's going to tell us that there is, what, 150, 20, 15 cubits on each side of it, 22 and a half feet on each side of it. So... <clears throat> He said, with well, their four pillars and their four sockets. Now, <clears throat> the 15-cubit entrance hangings, or pillars, would be on 7.5-cubit centers. So you can take these and take the, the, the way that it's put together. You can calculate just where these pillars are going to be set. Now, 7.5-cubit <clears throat> center, 7 is the number of perfection. So this would indicate the perfection of Jesus Christ. We've seen that this is um, wood, that it has an overlay to it, but seven is, takes us to that point. The gate pillars would be on six and two-third cubic centers, and it portrays that those who enter are not perfect, but are man plus salvation. So 6.67 cubits is less than seven, so they are not perfect. They are human beings, but they have been saved if they walk through the door. That's what it portrays. The four pillars show that entry is the same for every dispensation. So when you start looking at the number four, we've went through all the numbers before. Three is the, the trinity. Four kind of indicates a directional universal thing. And there really is four dispensations because there were four changes of priesthood unless you get into prehistory and posthistory. But there are four changes of the priesthood. And so... The four pillars across the front show the entry is the same for all dispensations. This entry portrays our entrance into phase one, grace, entry into salvation. And the embroidery again points out the attention to detail that God gave our salvation. So it's, it's interesting when you start looking at all the weaving and all the things that have been done there. To me, it's just such a remarkable thing of all the detail that went into the plan of God. Because look at this, just get some idea how, of how ornate it truly was. And then you start looking at the angelic conflict and how he put everything together and he laid out the, the end from the beginning. And he, he says, I know how everybody's going to decide forevermore. And I'm going to make a plan that's going to account for every one of those. Now, verse 17 says, All the pillars around the court shall be furnished 
with silver bands. Now, furnished is a puel participle, and puel is intensive passive participle, which it's and it, it's the word kashuk. Um, it's an interesting word selection here because it basically means to band in love or band with love. So these things shall be banded in love with silver, their hooks of silver, and their sockets of bronze. Okay, so out around the, the outer court, you have the top portion of it banded in silver, their hooks of silver that held on to the curtains, and the sockets they set in were made of bronze. So if you take acacia wood, humanity, you put it in bronze, you've got humanity being judged. That's at the bottom. And you put the silver on the top of it, and you got redemption being accomplished. And that's the picture that goes with each and every one of these boards going out around the, the outer tabernacle. Now verse 18, he gives us a, he gives us, he gives Moses the dimensions again. And he says, the length of the court shall be, we supply that, 100 cubits. And the width 50 throughout. This is a Hebrew construction that says, and and with the 50. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits. With the 50 is what it's saying. So it goes 100 cubits, then it goes 50 cubits is what it's saying. And it's telling us that there's going to be another 100 cubits, and they're supposed to be perfectly parallel to each other. Now, have you ever tried to lay out, lay out a perfect square or rectangle? I know Brian has. He does that all the time. So it's nothing new to him. But I decided I needed money real bad one time. And this friend in Tulsa wanted me to build a, a little metal building, 9 by 12. No big deal. Came with instructions. And so... You're going to build this, and the thing to build it on was first you had to get a uh, foundation. So I built the foundation out of two by sixes and three-quarter inch plywood and built it just perfectly where I could get the, the, the base set on top. It's a metal building, screwed in perfectly into this wooden uh, foundation. Now... You learn real fast, if you're going to do that, that the way that you square it up is to square the diagonals. You measure from corner to corner and corner to corner. And if it's not identical, it is not square. <laughs> and on a 9 by 12 building, if it is a quarter of an inch off, it can cause you more grief than you ever want to think about why? Because the holes probably weren't cut real well anyway on a cheap metal building. But they don't line up. And so you'll find out real fast that you have to have that square or rectangle laid out perfectly at the start. Or by the time you get to the top, you've got a bigger mess than you can think of. Sometimes even causing people to start over again. 
and just totally redo it. And yet, whenever you get a square, though, then it can go up. Now, what is God telling Moses? I want this perfect. This is 150 feet long by 75 feet wide, and I want it perfect. I want to be able to take a measuring staff, like in Revelation 11. I want to be able to take this thing and measure it at any point along that 100 cubit side, and it be exactly 50 cubits across, and vice versa. He is telling Moses, I want this perfectly straight. Now, does that maybe teach of the perfection of his plan? And how important it is and how he laid it all out. And he talks about in places an orderly foundation of the world. It, they translate two different words foundation in, in the New Testament. It drives me nuts when they do. One is the melios, which means to place a foundation. Okay, And the other one is a word katabale, and it means to throw it down. Now which one's going to be straighter? Doesn't take long to figure that out, does it? A thamelios is one that you have placed. Each individual part of that foundation goes in a placement exactly like it's supposed to be. That's the way God laid the world out. A thamelios. The perfect plan. But the katabale happened when Satan fell. And that is called a disorderly foundation. And it is called the disorderly foundation of the world because everything got screwed up whenever he fell all the creation groans because of what he what happened by Satan in Romans chapter 8 it talks about it so here is this orderly foundation that God once laid on this tabernacle just to be sure that Moses and the Jews and all the rest of us get the fact that whenever God lays it out he wants it perfect that's the way he designed it. Now, what if it's not? Does that fit any of us? <laughs> Fits all of us, right? Since Adam, including the angels. So we, we got all messed up. What happens when we get messed up? We need a Savior. It's exactly what happened. So he's saying, I want this thing laid out perfectly. And if it's not, you better get it straightened out. That's what is done inside of here. Now, I didn't mean to get off preaching on that, but it preached well. So, anyway, the repetition of information in verse 17 and 18, and notes there's no exception as to the means of entry into the plan of God. John 3.16, I think we all know that pretty well. John 3.36, who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe in the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. So how do you get into the plan of God? By faith in the Son. It's the way it's always been. I've just been going back through Romans. I go through Romans, it takes us back to chapter 4, takes us back to Abraham. And you go back to, to Abraham, and how did Abraham get saved? And Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. The gospel is called an eternal gospel in Revelation 14, 6, because it's always been the same. It's never changed. So the parallel walls denote again the righteousness of God's plan. And notice, making them parallel means making them straight. 
Guess what the root meaning of righteousness is? Straight. Why are we not to be part of a crooked and perverted generation? Because they're not walking straight. Their hangings were to be five cubits high, denoting the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Five is the number of grace. Their height, seven and a half feet, also denotes that the demands of righteousness are above the capabilities of man. We can't do it on our own. Reminds me of a verse that says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Whoa. Everybody thought the Pharisees were the most righteous people walked the planet. Just ask them. They knew they were. But he says, we can't meet that righteousness. At a distance, a man could see the upper portion of the tent denoting that there is more than salvation available to man. Once they got inside the door, they could see a much larger structure. And if they ever got a peek inside, then they could see just what was there and waiting. But to find out, man had to enter the gate, become a believer. When you see the Lord talking about people trying to climb up over the walls, John chapter 10, climbing over the walls of the sheepfold. What about climbing over the walls of the tabernacle? That's what false teachers do, isn't it? False prophets do. People want to do things their own way instead of God's way. They want to find any other way to do it or dig underneath. But to find out, man has to enter the gate. Those standing next to the curtains can see nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ blocking entry till they see the gate. Now, there's only a handful of people in history who's over seven and a half feet tall. Goliath could have peeked over. Okay, He could have looked over the top of those curtains. But everybody else, the closer they got to the curtains, the more they're confronted with the white linen curtains. And it's all about the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did they know that when they walked up? Probably not. But maybe they would ask, what's... Why do you have white curtains all all around when it's so stinking dirty out here in the desert? Well, because we need the righteousness, not our own. There's all kinds of openings to give the gospel. The evangelist would point out where the door is. That's what the evangelist would do. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. You know, the the meaning of that little verse, I am, the Greek, I myself am, is what Jesus said. To the exclusion of all others, I myself am the way. It's interesting that the ancient zodiac was called the way. The word zodiac means way. I, I, I am what that was all about in ancient times. I am the way. I am the truth. Truth is not just found in a proposition, but in a person. And the life. I am the source of life, the sustainer of life, the maintainer of life. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you can believe those disciples knew what he was talking about. Because that was John 14 and John 10. He said, I am the door into the sheepfold. Now... 
To those outside the outer court, the gospel is presented typologically. It's there and it's in such a way, and if it's sitting there in the middle of the desert and you're an you're a, a unbelieving Jew or something, you might ask, what's all this for? And hopefully the priest would have some answers because they were supposed to know. To those outside the outer court, the gospel is presented typologically. The righteousness of Christ, which is the white linen, five cubits tall, in grace, was hooked to a tree, the wood pillars, which is the humanity of Christ. Judge for our sins, the bronze at the base, and was resurrected, pillar standing up, offering redemption to man, the silver on the top of it. And if you just first look at it, it just looks like a pole setting up in the middle of the desert, holding up a curtain. But the meaning was so much more significant. Verse 19, he says, All the utensils of the tabernacle, the utensils is the word keli, K-E-L-E-Y, used in all its service and all its pegs. Now, this is the Hebrew yathed. It's used 23 times, and this is the first use of it, and it is a tent peg. Um, it differentiates between those that are for the tabernacle, i.e., this portion inside, and those that are for the outer court. It's a differentiation of what's holding these things up. Now, when the Lord made a differentiation, we ask why. At least some crazy people do. The tabernacle was actually staked out. It's a different word that was used there. And then it says, in all the pegs of the court, that's where these ropes are holding these things up, and this peg that goes driven into the dirt, shall be a bronze. So it's no wood here. You're not going to stick any wood tent pegs in to hold these pillars up. They're going to be bronze. So the Lord's very specific with what he does. See, the bronze utensils denote the point of contact with God as his justice because bronze is a picture of justice. Judgment or justice. So that's, that's the point of contact. The bronze tent pegs would be driven into the ground. And they portray judgment on the humanity of Christ. Every time they drove one of those in, it portrayed a judgment that was rendered on Christ. Adam. Adam. Where did Adam come from? Uh, seemed like a guy named Adam was made from Adam. Adama, actually the feminine form of that word. For the outer court, it denotes an inter integral part of the gospel. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to read these verses to you. Because Isaiah 22, I'm sure that's really on your lips right now. Isaiah 22:25. In that day, declares the Lord of the armies, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off. For the Lord has spoken. One of these days it's going to fall down, guys. For the tabernacle, it involves capacity to appreciate his work. Isaiah 22, a few verses earlier, verse 22 and 23. 
It's interesting where you find the word peg, isn't it? Because you see the word peg, tent peg, and if you're just reading through the Bible, I mean, don't we just blow past all that stuff? That's something we'd never even stop and think about again. It says, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Sounds like Messiah he's talking about, right? When he opens, no one will shut. Didn't Jesus in Revelation 3 says, I open a door, nobody shuts it. I shut a door, nobody opens it. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Talking about the Messiah. How did he get crucified? The pegs. Right? The stakes, the nails. When the tent pegs are pulled out by an enemy... It would denote a lack of salvation or capacity for God's word. If the people just gave up, they started worshiping idols, they never came to the do the sacrifices like they should, they turned away from it, and the enemy comes and they pull the tent pegs up. Even one peg being left in the holy place, though, is a manifestation of grace. Just look at the different places these tent pegs come up. And Ezra, uh, grief. Ezra 9.8 It says, For now, for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Here is Ezra. What's happened in Ezra? They've already been out in exile. They've already come back. They've already been given the command by Artaxerxes to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And they're there doing that. And he's basically saying, if we got one peg left, we're still here. There's a remnant of us that are still here. So even one peg left in the holy place should be an encouragement to the Jews to not give up and don't quit. The millennium is related to the permanent placement of the tabernacle. In Isaiah 33:20, you go through Isaiah and you find a lot of millennial passages there. Isaiah 33:20, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation. A tent shall not be folded, its stakes shall never be pulled up nor any of its cords be torn, torn apart. Isn't that an interesting statement? When does that happen? Millennial kingdom. Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. And strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your descendants will possess nations and they will resettle the desolate areas. That is the, the audience warm-up for the millennial kingdom. And basically what he's saying, because they understood about tents, one thing they did is that you're going to have a time that you're going to put down your tent pegs once again, never to be pulled up. Never to be pulled up. Now, 
Can you think of anything more comforting to a Jew that's been pushed all over the globe since Abraham? They've tried to annihilate them, destroy them, and do everything possible to them. And this basically is words of encouragement. Unbelievers will be nailed by the tent peg. Zechariah 10.4 From then will come the cornerstone. From then the tent peg. (laughs) From them the bow of battle. From them every ruler, all of them together. So the unbelievers, if they don't let, let the tent peg sink, become a believer, go into phase two, uh, and function like a believer. Unbelievers, the tent peg. This peg that goes in, the judgment on Christ, driven into the dirt. Guess what? If they don't accept him, then they're going to get uh, they're going to get drilled, basically. Which will dig a hole for them and cover them up like excrement. Boy, that's graphic, isn't it? Where's that symbolism come from? Deuteronomy 23:13. Now see, it's an interesting thing because God loved object lessons, visuals. Every time the Jews had to go number two, it should have reminded them of the fate of unbelievers. Why would you make a statement like that? He says. You shall also have a place outside the camp and go out there. And you shall have a spade among your tools. And it shall be when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and shall turn to cover up your excrement. This spade was our peg again. Take a peg with you to dig a hole in the ground. Do your business and cover it back up. Interesting. Is that going to happen with the unbelievers? Yeah. Read things about the second advent. Isaiah 60 to 66. Who's this coming from? Bozra. How long is it going to take to bury the dead? Uh, the dead is going to be. It's going to take six months to bury the dead. Is what it's going to do. Because they never accepted that which was so freely offered to them so abundantly paid for and they said no to it now in verse 20 is the oil for the lampstand now I wanted to get through here but I don't have time to get through here tonight but we start to move into some different things oil for the lampstand and um, won't be too much longer we'll be done with this the tabernacle proper and the next thing is the priesthood get to take a peek at uh the Levitical priesthood, the royal priest, and see, do you, you think maybe there's some symbolism there with the Urim and Thummim and 12 stones that were placed on the ephod, the breastplate of the high priest? Yeah, there was a lot of symbolism found in just the garments of the high priest. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your amazing plan, for the amazing uh, blessings that you have laid out for us from eternity past. And Father, I pray that indeed your hand will be upon us. You'll help us to remember uh, the the way that your plan is uh, so perfect, so perfectly laid out, and that we should seek to find uh, your plan in just that fashion. So Father, I pray you'd lead us into all your truth and show us things to come. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.